out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the label record boss. It is John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, who's been putting out some amazing releases recently and has also got quite a few in the pipeline that are going to be coming out again or coming out later in the year. But so far has released uh, people such as Tim Burgess, The Nightingales, The Blue Orchids, The Band of Holy Joy, John Langford, Martin Branner, Blue Orchids, and also Stuart Moxon, he of the Young Marble Giants, so, um, yes, there are more than that, but um, I know, and that did sound like the generation game. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. John, tell us now, tell us everything. It's over to you. Well, to be honest, when I was, I mean, I was born in 1965, so we're not very different in age, but the, the glam thing in Bowie didn't really happen in America at all, except Bowie much later. And um, no, I can't really say I did really, it would have been punk for me. Right. Yeah. Yes, and did you come from a, mu- whereabouts in America did you grow up? I grew up outside Chicago. Right. And um, no, my parents weren't at all into music and uh, almost all my childhood experiences with music were just uh, hearing the radio in the car when we were driving some- somewhere. And I had, I think, fairly peculiar taste. Even as a young kid, I just loved things that sounded strange. I remember um, uh, things like Petula Clark on the radio and and the production on those songs just stood out. Yes. You know, I wouldn't have known what production was. You know, it, it had a very weird metallic sound and, you know, it just wasn't that fluffy stuff. And, and a lot of novelty hits and just... Uh, strange things. I listened to a lot of soul when I was a kid because there was um, a really brilliant soul station out of Chicago called WVON, which uh, the call letters originally stood for Voice of the Negro because it was an all-black radio station. Um, And uh, I had a friend with a transistor radio across the street named Amy. And we used to listen to WVON because they would have a a DJ doing this voiceover with a load of echo which said, you're listening to WVON, the voice of the Negro, Negro, Negro. And we didn't really understand the metaphorical meaning of that. And so we just thought there was some just big guy called the Negro. And, you know, he never said anything except for that. But um, I got really turned on to a lot of Chicago soul, uh, you know, anything Curtis Mayfield related and the Shy Lights and the Dells. and, And that was kind of my first, love but i didn't know anything about it except uh the songs i'd hear on the radio yes it's good that you like petula clark though because downtown always had a certain drama to it i must yeah. admit i suppose one of the first songs that i can remember because it was a tv program was Scylla. it was called the Scylla show and um obviously Scylla black but the the title you know, I think it was it was on at such a, a certain time when I was very young that I could hear the the beginning of the song or the first song that she sung, and then had to go to bed. And it mm. was um, God, I, know, I can't remember what it was called actually. 
oh God, Cilla Black, the song, which was Step Inside Love, that was it. And that was just such a dramatic song. And it was like, God, what yeah. is this? And then I'd have to go to bed. But then years later, or decades later, I found out it was written by John, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And I just remember that, you know, when you listen to it, it's almost like, almost like, grunge you know it has this kind of sort of quiet quiet and then it has this great sort of dramatic bit and I must have been you know I don't know six or seven but I always remember that song really well and then because I used to sort of I suppose my mum was a housewife and used to have radio two on so it was the work of back back or I can you know mm-hmm. the carpenters that I really also fell in love with which I thought if you love the work of the carpenters you're definitely going to love the Smiths and Joy Division later because the lyrics are just so melancholic right. and sad and depressing and lonely, aren't they? So uh, they, you know, for some reason, I just love the, the work of the Carpenters and still do. So there yeah, there was a, there was a hidden strangeness to a lot of that music, and and I think things like Petula Clark or Cilla Black uh, or the Carpenters, you know, tried to toe that line between having the kids like like it and having the parents like it, and frequently they came up with stuff that was really bizarre from either perspective. I think. Uh, a lot of odd production and you're right about the carpenters um lyrics i had a had a run in years ago with richard carpenter um at a at a record company christmas party of all things and uh <laughs> and he was a really angry man oh, was i mean he? I was having a kind of a lovely chat with him and he was perfectly cordial but you could tell he just had this sort of ferocious angst in there and it's really, it was very strange because uh, in America, the Carpenters were kind of the, the epitome of just, you know, white, really bland pop music. Although even as a kid, you could tell there was a lot more going on yes. in there than not. But uh, yeah, it's interesting, that stuff. So dear old Richard, yes, I know. At a Christmas party as well. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yes, but I did, you know, I don't know. I just remember sort of having this record because, I mean, you know, we were from a quite, you know, I suppose very working class family. And, you know, I think when my parents got married in the 50s, they never borrowed money. So they just used to, you know, they just got their home together, just worked. And um, I mean, I think my dad sold his, you know, every possession he had, got this, you know, little house. And then in the 70s, you know, a record player appeared and there was a few kind of rather boring records. But I had a brother who was seven years older than me who was into prog rock of, you know, Sweet and Slade, not not Sweet. Um, oh, that was my record taste. It was it was kind of prog rock. It was Yes and Genesis and Wish uh, yeah. Ash and Barkley, James Harvest, and also Deep Purple and Black Sabbath albums, you know. And I, I remember sort of being absolutely obsessed with this prog rock music, you know, for quite a bit of the 70s, really. So I, I was too young for punk, I have to say. I think I was anyway. And also I came from the countryside. Punk never really happened. So it was just, it was never going to reach, you know, those kind of rural kind of villages. Um, so it was more the 80s. So when you got to sort of 1980, were you leaving school at this fa- stage of your life? Well, no, I'm 57. So I, I left, I mean, you know, I graduated from high school in 1983. Right. So, so punk, um, the first I heard of it was actually um, uh, sitting in a dentist chair, I was listening to the radio, and there was a sort of a human interest news story about the sex pistols and just how outrageous they were. And they, you know, spit on their fans and, uh, you know, saying all these horrible things. And I was uh, 12. So I just thought that sounded fantastic. I mean, I just love the absurdity and weirdness of it. And punk happened even probably later in America than it did in, in provincial 
uh, Britain. But um, every now and then you'd stumble across something that was that was different and strange. And so uh, for me, it was uh, the Clash, and you'd hear the Talking Heads and and stuff that was sort of commercial. And um, and then by by the time I was in my later years of high school, when I was 15, 16, 17, um, there was a record store in Chicago, Wax Tracks, which later became the label. Oh, but they, yeah. had, they just brought in everything. Chicago was fantastic for that, much better than most of the country. And you could get records by uh, you know, The Fall and, and The Subway Sect and, and you know, anything on Rough Trade. And so that was, that's just what really got me into it. It was really kind of early post-punk. Yes, uh, and things like the slits, and I was big into reggae, which which never was nothing like what it was in the UK. I mean, it's you know nothing came out; it's impossible to find anything almost. But I love that. I love that kind of stuff. I was yeah. a really, I was a really, I was like the weird kid in my town. Well, yeah, absolutely, because kind of you know, eighty three, I think, is a great significant year for me. Because in a way, in this country, you know, we had you know seventy nine, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in, so we have you yeah. know eleven years of Thatcherism, which is quite a, a kind of a monumental moment. Because in the seventies, the UK, we were we were going from the Conservative government to the Labour government almost on a, a monthly basis with you know Callaghan, Ted Heath, all these kind of odd chaps, you know, the three day week, you know. Yeah. All the, you know, endless strikes, the power of the union. And then suddenly, you know, the 80s appears and we've got, you know, the Falkland War. Then we have the, the coal miners and the battle against the unions. And then we have, you know, Green and Common and the whole sort of thing with, you know, nuclear missiles on the in the country. And then I suppose, yeah, Green and Common, you know, and then a few years later, there's kind of Red Wedge and the Socialist Workers Party. But, but for me, 83 is this kind of... So musically, there was that punk, then there was the post-punk period, like you just mm -hmm. mentioned. And then there was a few years where no one quite knows what's happening. And then you've got that new romantic world and the electronic stuff coming in. But then as an indie kid, you know, 83 was the Smiths appeared. And then it felt like... Yeah we had this five years of the Smiths and it was like, right, there you go. This is, this is all good stuff. And, and also, you know, the UK, as you know, is a tiny little place, isn't it? And, um, mm. you know, we have, you know, three weekly music papers, you know, right. NM Melody Makers Sounds with huge circulation. So you had those kind of gatekeepers and you had John Peel as well. So it was kind of, um, it was kind of an interesting time, you know, musically because, because for the next five years, Indie, indie music that sort of appears and anything that John Peel plays seems to be just amazing from sort of, you know, anything from that, that usual sort of world of the Bundu boys to Public Enemy to yeah. you know, Gregory Isaacs to all the other usual kind of cliched stuff like the, the June Brides and Go-Betweens and the Triffids. So when you got to 83, did you leave school at this stage or were you sort of... I, went to, I left school and went to university. Um... And I, I happened to go to a school that had a really good college radio station because we didn't have anything similar to, to John Peel or, or let alone three weekly music papers or anything like that. So college radio, at the point I went, I left for university uh, in the autumn of, of 83, that was kind of the, when college radio really started taking off. Uh, and there's, there, there was enough of, America's so big and it's so spread out that British bands would come and tour but they would play, you know, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., maybe go to Chicago, maybe go to the West Coast. But most of the country, if they were really going to tour, it would have taken three months and, you know, <laughs> killed a lot of killed a lot of British bands that came over trying to do that. Yes. And, uh, and so college radio was a big thing. And that's that was sort of the birth of 
what would be roughly analogous to the C86 thing in America was in that period in the 80s when we had uh, independent labels that weren't just local Chicago or New York or LA labels, but had nationwide reach and uh, things started sort of happening much quicker. Um, bands would, would tour the, the country and uh, radio stations, at least college radio stations and a, and a few independent stations would pick up on the stuff more or less at the same time. So it, it gave the, the music scene a lot, of co a lot of cohesion and it kind of started working. But we were always a few years behind what was happening in the UK uh, until the, the beginning or mid eighties when there, there started to be real American, a real American kind of new wave post-punk alternative scene. Yes, would that have been bands like REM or? Yeah, REM. I mean, that, that REM record came out. Um, I don't know if it was my last year of high school, my first year of university, but yeah, that was a huge game changer in a lot of ways because it wasn't going to get uh, play on on real commercial radio, top forty radio, at least not for for several years. And everybody had that record, and and there were just, there were a lot of bands that were a little rootsier maybe than um, than what was going on in the UK. And I, and I don't know if you remember, but even Rough Trade put out records by uh, the Dream Syndicate and uh, uh, I think Rank and File and some American bands that were kind of tipped for success, but probably got there a little, little too early that to happen. Yeah, because you did have, I suppose there was that new Paisley scene, wasn't there? The Rain Parade and... Um... Yes, uh, Green on Red came along, didn't they? Probably yeah. the mid '80s to late '80s. That was a lot more Midwest, but you know, you'd hear about it, which was a change. Jason and the Scorchers. Jason yeah. and the Scorchers, yeah, <laughs> you were great. But then you had this kind of LA kind of hardcore punk scene, didn't you? With, and that that all seemed really quite um, bad brains. All those kind of bands, you know, Henry Rollins, you know, because what yeah. I sort of realised doing so many interviews with American bands from different regions is that it's very localised, isn't it? It's just like there is the Athens scene, there's the Boston scene, there's the New York scene, you know, it's very, yes, everybody is very sort of in their little island. It's, I mean, you could drive from, you know, northern Scotland to London in the time it would take you to drive from Chicago to uh, the next big city west. So you just couldn't, you know, it was really, things just were communicated really slowly. This news traveled very, very slowly for a while and there wasn't an infrastructure and um, the major labels controlled everything and it just took a really long time to come together. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. It's kind of, it is kind of amazing. I do feel a bit bad. Sometimes I spoke to a few people who talked about when they were in their younger days, fans saying, oh yeah, we had to drive six hours to a, the city yeah. to go and see a British band that we liked or any band. And it's like, God, sometimes I didn't go to a gig because it was like, oh, I can't bother to drive an hour. So I felt right. terrible about that, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, dear, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Well, that's I mean, it, 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 Chicago is a city in the Midwest. So if, and, and the problem you were 21. And so I was listening to, to, to bands that would come to Chicago and play as Fort and there was and it was um but but when I could finally go to shows you would get you would get people that would come from Milwaukee and Madison Wisconsin and Minneapolis and Iowa City and St. Louis because a band might just play one show in the Midwest and if you were a fan 
uh, you were going to go. Yes, absolutely. I must admit, one thing that I noticed from speaking to a lot of bands from Britain who, you know, have the five-year narrative, as you could imagine, you know, they they got together, they had that 12-month honeymoon period, you know, they got a single mm. John Peel played it, got the John Peel session. First album, things are going quite well, the transit van around the countryside, because every city and town in the UK had an alternative indie night, so that was quite handy. And you could just just drive around from, you know, Bristol to Brighton to Leeds, Hull, Glasgow, right. you know, everybody, you know, and it was like then the second album, things are a bit you know, interesting, sometimes a bit tricky. Um, and the third album is, is often when a band dies. But also the other thing is when they go to America, a lot of people go, oh, yes, we toured America, came back and split up because it just seemed to destroy them. So yeah. it was quite a, it's quite an amusing thing, which I had never realised that they said it just is tightly hard and if you've been there for too long you start going completely bonkers you know you just can't cope with it anymore and yeah you never want to do it again really so um it is it it, it does destroy a lot of bands but then when i did an interview with miles copeland he said that it was playing in america where he's i think his brother who's also a promoter put them yeah. on the floor and they they were absolutely unknown they played in front of about four people but one of them happened to be a, quite a sort of influential I think a radio person who sort of started to sort of promote them a bit more and then they got a bit of traction, but it was playing in front of four people. That was the big break in the police's career, which was quite bizarre to think. So, um, yes, it does that's, kind of happen. That's, I, I can't tell you how many bands I saw where there were two dozen people in the audience. And, uh, you know, I mean, even, even like when I, when I could get into a show, Jesus and Mary Chain came over in their first tour and I saw them play at this big club in Chicago. and there were, I don't know, 85 people there. And, th- and this was when they were on the front cover of, you know, The Enemy and Melody Maker and all that every week. And, you know, there's a huge buzz, but yeah. You yes. Know, you, really had to tour, you really had to tour America three or four times uh, uh, to get a shot at, at actually breaking through. And I know. It's I expensive think- and, yeah. Because there is that kind of thing, isn't there? The breaking, you know, like bands thinking, oh, yes, we must go to America and do it. And I get them being... You know, the people, I don't know how Oasis and um, Blur got on, but there's kind of a history of bands going over to America, absolutely having no joy at all and coming back feeling quite humbled. I guess emotionally they must be a little bit like, um, not messed up, but a bit confused about like, oh my God, they just don't know us there. And the, you know, like, I don't know, Robbie Williams once tried it, didn't he, and had a big go at, right, I'm going to go for the American market. I've got the video, I've got some famous person in my video. Um, and trying to sort of do it, but then sort of like, oh, I'm not sure that's working, Robbie. It's all a bit embarrassing. So right. you better come home and just play in front of your know, home crowd. They love you. So there you go. But then, so what happens for you then in 86? Do you leave university at this stage, college? I went in at 83, so I would have left it at the end of 87. Um, I, you know, I just did a zillion different things and traveled around and... Uh, um, you know, was involved in music in all sorts of ways and did lots of other stuff. I mean, I just kind of lived life uh, for a long time and um, <laughs> a million stories. But uh, And then I moved to Europe, really, um, and I was living in Hungary and um, I was managing a bank robber, uh, believe it or not. And um, uh, I did that and... and in 2015, I was really involved in the refugee crisis. Um, and a lot of refugees were coming into Budapest as a sort of entry point to the EU, 
which led to me getting kicked out of Hungary. Yes. And, um, yeah. So I moved. So, to so on the on the so on that front, I mean, that's quite a jump, isn't it, from Chicago to Hungary? What what's slightly what that sounds quite interesting. I know I can't remember who I spoke to. Somebody who ended up with a oh god, what's the band called? He he ended up in Russia, sort of, and um, running a record label, or sort of being part of a record label, which I can't remember who he was now. But he said it was weird because the Russian mafia would come in, and and it was like being in a, one of those Hollywood films with bad actors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't quite remember his name actually, but um, Kill the Flowers or something. I think the band was mm. called. But how so? How did you find yourself in Hungary? Um, I studied linguistics in school, and I speak a lot of languages, and so one year. Uh, I just decided to go to Hungary for, for the summer and start to learn Hungarian. And I kept going back and I just, things, I, I liked it there. So I just ended up moving there, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a process of a few years. But um, yeah, I liked it. I learned Hungarian. I went to Romania and I learned Romanian. And, and uh, it was a funny place to live because when I went, they were still... I mean, in some extent, they still are, you know, making the adjustment from, uh, you know, the uh, post-World War, World War, and the, the Russian, and uh, there was a lot of optimism, and it was a very interesting place, and you could, you could kind of do anything you wanted, because people had been taught, I think, for a few generations not to have any initiative whatsoever, so when I was living in Budapest, I brought uh, the Blue Orchids over. Just uh, how'd you like? You know, I just wrote Martin Brahma and said, "How'd you like to to play in Buda, Budapest?" And I brought him over and I put on the show and um, at this club and there were maybe three hundred people there and they were <laughs> they were really impressed. They were like, "That's more than we that's more than we play a lot of times in the UK." And then I brought the Nightingales over and um, I was talking to Martin Brahma about starting a label to, and I put out some Blue Orchids records. And then when the Nightingales came over, I they were kind of bemoaning the fact they didn't have a label and every record album anyway that they'd ever put out had been on a different label. They'd never put out two albums on the same label. And um, I was having a talk with Rob Lloyd and he was, he'd had a bit to drink. And uh, the next morning he said, Hey, you know, I know you said you'd put out a record, but uh, you know, uh, we were drinking and I, of course I wasn't drinking. because I didn't really <laughs> drink. and, But uh, you know, would you still consider it nice? And just to kind of mess with his head, I said, um, well, you know, I thought about it and I decided, you know, I really can't go by what we talked about last night. And he said, well, yeah, I understand. You know, it's it's cool. It's nice of you to even consider it. I said, no, you, you're getting me wrong. I'll only agree to do it if I can be the first label to put out two Nightingale's albums. And, you know, I was just joking, but he, he really loved that. I don't think anybody had ever said that to him before in, in nearly 40 years. And uh, that's kind of what ended up happening. Well, now yes. we're on like the fourth record. Well, yeah. this is this is true. So, had you had any experience in the music industry business before this this moment in Budapest? Uh, not in Budapest, no. But in America, I put out a few records, and I I managed a band called uh, the Pulsars. Who um, I, I worked with. Well, there's a lot. I did a lot of things. I mean, I worked with this guy Siggy Balderson, who's the drummer for the Sugar Cubes, and his wife was doing a PhD in Madison. Wisconsin. And so we brought over some Icelandic musicians to record in Chicago with this friend of mine who had a studio. And uh, the, the Mekons, whom I knew, recorded there. And 
uh, this guy who owned the studio started a band with his brother and he recorded some demos and um, said, uh, you know, would you, would you mind shopping this around? And so I did and, and right away we got interest from Atlantic and um, they offered a deal within an hour of, of me playing a tape for the vice president of Atlantic. And I went back and said, you know, this is so easy that it just seems like we should probably look around a bit more. And um, we, I, it, over the course of six months, we were negotiating with 12 different labels and we ended up getting a, a deal worth a couple of million dollars. And they signed this deal and um, the record came out and it didn't do particularly well in America. It did really well in Japan. And the label was called Almo Sounds, and it was the label started by Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss, who who used to own A and M. And uh, they, Herb called me one day and said, "You know, um, we had a three firm deal, which means they guaranteed they would put out three records." And he he called me and said, "You know, we're not um, we're just not having fun doing this like we were. The, the music business has changed, and so we're going to shut down the label." And they ended up paying us off what what they would have owed us to do the next couple of records. And uh, so uh, I had an, enough money to buy a house from it. And, and uh, the, the brothers had money and, and uh, Dave Trumpio, the, who was the engineer who, and they, the, the, the demos that we shopped around, they recorded in like five hours. I mean, that was like, they'd never, never played live at that point or anything. Their first show was Oh, you just Hello. slightly you just slightly froze there. You said oh. that um God, sorry about that. The joys of the internet. Right. You, yeah, so you said that um they, they recorded in five hours. What was that next bit you mentioned? They recorded the they recorded the demo in five hours because they didn't have anyone in the studio that day. And so the next day, uh Dave asked me, he played it for me and asked if I'd shop it around and I wasn't really I don't really like shopping things around, so I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. But um He'd done me a lot of favors, so I did. And uh, like a week later, I was in New York talking to Atlantic and they just offered a deal right straight away. So I went back and said, we should talk to some other people. And we ended up getting a dozen labels involved and we ended up doing this deal with with Elmo Sounds, with Herb and Jerry uh, for a bunch of money. And then when that all collapsed, uh, we got paid out and Dave moved out to LA and uh, opened a studio and he's now got I don't know, 35 or 36 studios. He's a really big deal producer out there. He's worked with. My God, you gave him the break. So what was the, God, I just slightly might have missed it. Who was the band that you were dealing? Well, you wouldn't know them. They were called the Pulsars. Right. And and, uh, it was these two brothers and they were just really, they're a bit younger than me, like three or four years younger. And so they were really taken with, like when they were 13 was when the Smiths and the Cure were becoming really big in America. And they, they just had this really geeky, very new wave band with lots of synths and sort of absurdist lyrics. And they were very poppy. Um, and Dave's a brilliant musician and, and he's, he's now would just work with everybody. Uh, and it just, what, you know, it was one of those things that was either going to be the hugest thing ever or it was going to be a disaster. It actually wasn't really a disaster, but um, uh, they recorded hundreds of songs and um, they did 12, um I've, I've put out an album of theirs outtakes like a year or two ago um, right. it's really great and they have 
they have all these other songs, but but uh, they didn't. They sold like three thousand records in America, and they sold maybe ten thousand in Japan, and that was about it. Yes, you know, that was not nice. enough to make the money back. No, yeah. my God, but you must have got a slight sort of uh, excitement. Did you? I mean, just a bit early. Did you say you managed a bank robber as well? Yeah, in Hungary, I managed a bank robber named uh, Attila Ambrus. Yes. Yeah, he's he's one of the most notorious bank robbers, as it goes in the world. Um, he he was an ethnic Hungarian from Romania. During communism, the Hungarians, Romanians, and the Hungarian minority in Romania was more or less three counties, and they just kept to themselves. And uh, he was kind of a kid that got into a lot of trouble. And at one point, he knew he'd better get out of Romania because he was getting into a lot of trouble. So he. Um, how he escaped, because there was, a, there was really severe border control between the countries, how he escaped was he laid himself down on, a, on, a, on his back on a railway track, and he waited till a train passed overhead, and then he just grabbed, he just put his arms up and grabbed on something and tr- let the train drag him into Hungary, kind of knowing that there was like a 50-50 chance that he'd either make it or it would be a really ugly death, and he made it, and um, went to Budapest, and... Um, worked, became sort of a famous hockey player, uh, made a, had all these part-time jobs, but they wouldn't give him Hungarian citizenship, which they're supposed to do if you're a, an ethnic Hungarian, because they just didn't believe his story of how he got into the country. And they thought he was kind of a, a spy for Ceausescu, uh, who was the dictator of Romania. And so um, he ended up just doing all these odd jobs and getting really angry. And so he started robbing banks and he robbed about, 26 banks um, and uh, till he got, uh, and um, they put him in this sort of uh, you know glass jail thing while he awaited a trial because he or he was going to escape yes and oh. um, can you hear me? Sorry. You just said you just slightly you just and, slightly cut out. You said you'd put him in a glass cage because he might escape. Yeah, and then he and then um he was found guilty and sentenced to a long term in prison and then um he escaped from jail and he got out and he robbed three more banks and um he had a sort of a system where he would rank a bank from one to five and one was like you could do this by yourself, it'd be really easy to knock it off, but you know, you're not gonna get much money. Mm. And then Five was a major bank, major risk. If you could pull it off, you'd make a bunch of money, uh, and you have to have a, you'd have to have a partner. And he'd never attempted a, a four or a five. And uh, when he got out and he robbed these two banks, he you know he was such a notorious bank robber that the banks all across Hungary had improved their security systems dramatically. And so he realized to to escape from Hungary, he needed money, and he went and he robbed a a, a level five bank. And uh, uh, the bank was surrounded while he was in there and he still managed to escape uh, and hide out until they caught him again and he went to jail. And, um, and he got out a dozen years later. And I knew there's a, a book called uh, Ballad of the Whiskey Robber, <clears throat> which came out in America and it was a bestseller in America. And when I was living in Hungary, by, by accident, I met this Hungarian woman who had done all the... Um, translating and interpreting for the American author who didn't speak Hungarian. And we got to be friends. And so when he was coming out of jail, there were all these film deals in the works, potentially Johnny Depp had 
you know, was interested and um, uh, there was a Hungarian company that, that had uh, um, sort of dibs on the rights, but they hadn't made their sort of guaranteed payments the last two years. And I got involved in sorting all that out and then ended up firing everybody that was involved in it. And so I was managing him until, um, until I got him a, a, a movie deal in Hungary and they made a movie called um, The Whiskey Robber or Viskish in Hungarian. And um, it came out uh, by a Hungarian uh, director who had been working in Hollywood and he did a bunch of movies in Hollywood. He did one of those like alien versus predator movies. Right. Um, and uh, the movie came out in Hungary and uh, it didn't just didn't quite take off the way they'd hoped. It was, I think, the first or second most expensive movie in Hungary. And um, uh, it did well there, but it just wasn't really going to work uh, with subtitles anywhere else. And it, it, it sort of died. And that's actually what kept me from getting out, kicked out of Hungary after 2015 was that I'd worked on that. And the guy who ran the Hungarian Film Foundation who funded it was the this guy who, he was a big producer in Hollywood before he was run out of Hollywood. And he did Rocky films and he did um, Evita. Mm. And he did uh, some of the Term Terminator films. Um, and so when they tried to kick me out of Hungary the first time, they sent immigration to my, uh, to my flat and to interview me to try to trip me up. And then when I mentioned uh, Andy Vina, this, the guy who ran the Hungarian Film Foundation's name, uh, who was a horrible person too, by the way, but uh, when I mentioned his name, all of a sudden they backed off. And so uh, it wasn't until a year later after he died that they kicked me out. I think they just thought I had some veil of production because he worked for the government and the government sort of illegally gave him these uh, casinos that the government had ran because they wanted to keep him in Hungary because he'd you know, been very rare for a Hungarian to leave the country and come back successful. Yes. Usually just stay gone. So it's kind of a weird story. So that's... That's so that's kind of where I got the money to start the label, really, from this film deal. Blimey, that is amazing. That is, yeah. So, so what was just kind of as a character? What, did you meet the, this, the famous bank robber, you know? And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally managed him. I saw him every day. I mean, he, oh, he's, um, he's the person who has a severe problem with impulse control, <laughs> <laughs> um, which befits a bank robber. He's a, he's a character. Um, he's, um, uh, He's about our age, maybe a couple of years younger. And um, he just he just only perceives the world in terms of, of deal-making. And he has no patience and, and no ability to really control himself. So he's a very hard person to kind of manage. Um, and the fact that uh, it got to the point where the movie got made was was something of a miracle. And um, and Johnny, Johnny Depp did option uh, the rights, but I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Right. Uh, for, for, the Amer for an American version. Yes. Um, yeah, it's very weird. But uh, he's still out there. He, he, he actually, he, he, when he was in prison, he decided he didn't really want to um, interact with other prisoners. And they had, of course, prison there's far more civilized than it would be in America or, or even in Britain. And um, they had a room where you could, you could work with clay. And he became sort of an expert at pottery. And he would make... Um, um, all sorts of just odd pottery things. And, and after uh, 12 or 13 years or whatever it was in prison, 
he came out and he was quite good. And that's, he, he goes to fairs now and around Hungary, they have you know, weekend fairs in different cities. And he makes pottery and he makes some, he was called the whiskey robber because he used to, before he would rob a bank, he would, he would try to sort of, you know, keep an eye on it for a few hours before he went in, usually by finding a bar and drinking a lot of whiskey to, to bolster his courage. So he makes these ceramic flasks um, that have an image of him and all this sort of, you know, symbolism about his bank robbing and whatnot. And he, he sells those at fairs and he's, he's done pretty well. Yes, blimey, that's that's extraordinary. I just kind of wonder what the a characteristic when you're having a coffee, you know, and you're thinking this is quite, you know, the, if there was any key characteristics that you think, God, you are quite different to anybody else I've ever met in my life. I mean, do you, did you yeah, always feel just, a bit on edge? Uh, I got along with him okay. Um, the, the woman who translated the book about him is the one who introduced me and, and, and she was one of my best pals in Hungary and, and she had a harder time dealing with him. Um, I just didn't take it very seriously because he just really, he was so impulsive about everything that, you know, you just kind of knew it was going to be kind of a disaster, but it was, it was funny. And um, yeah, he had, you know, for, for instance, as it turns out, this isn't in the book and he never told anybody, but he, he primarily robbed, well, he almost always robbed this bank called OTP, which is a big bank chain. And it used to be the like national Hungarian bank until after communism, everything was privatized. And the reason they robbed that particular bank, you know, brand, if you will, uh, was because he just ha- really had it out for the Hungarian government. This was just, he was just going to rob from the Hungarian government. And so he robbed those banks. And then um, after he got caught, he, he stole in all uh, around a million euros worth of money, which is in Hungary. I mean, particularly at that time, we're talking at the end of the 80s. Mm. Uh, I mean, just an enormous amount of money. I mean, a flat was like 14,000 pounds. And he could have bought, you know, a skyscraper for that much. And of course, um, lacking all impulse control, he just spent the money as fast as he made it. He gave it away and he'd just go drinking and he'd do a lot of bad things. And, um, and so he always, then he had to rob another bank, you know, to, to continue his lifestyle. And so when he got arrested and, and was found guilty, he ended up owing, I think at this point, it, it's probably around 3 million euros with interest. And, um, to be able to pay it back and it's it's are you there so sorry he's never going to be able to pay it back and it's a bit of a joke now but when he was out of jail uh we were looking for these one approached the bank and said, oh and you'll forgive this debt are you there no, I just froze. You just froze. When he Hold came out sec, the bank, when, okay. when, he, when he had to sort of pay it back, you then said... Duh, 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 duh. So he, he, he was never going to be able to pay it back because it's just a, a huge amount of money. So when he got out of jail, we were, we were, there were people that wanted to use him in adverts and whatnot. And I said, you know, we should go to OTP and say, hey, I used to rob this bank, but now I bank there. You know, just pitch this idea for, for an advert. And and just say, look, you don't have to pay them, but you just forgive this debt, which you're not going to get anyway. So it's really good advertising. It's not going to cost you anything. And then he's kind of like, 
free to sign a Hollywood movie deal without that becoming an issue and mm. whatnot. And they were, they were kind of into it. And then they said, okay, yeah, but he has to exclusively advertise, you know, represent us for like a year. He won't do any other adverts. And in the meantime, some guy who had a fencing company, who just put up fences, said, hey, if you do an advert for me, I'll give you a thousand euros, you know, which was nothing compared to the three million he was about to have written off. And so he was like, sure, I'll do it. And then that just kind of queered the, the um, it blew OTP the deal. deal. And that's just, yeah, that was just how it was. So, but we got the film made and I started yes. the label. And so there you go. So this was your, yes. So this is 2015. This is when you decide to start um, Tiny Global Productions. Yeah. This is right. So, and were you in Hungary at this stage or had you come back to America? I never went back to America. I'm in Spain. Right. Oh, um, no, I was, in, I was in Hungary and I put out the first uh, eight or nine records when I was in Hungary. Um, and then I got kicked out and uh, uh, my wife and I were, uh, she's actually from Venezuela and she wasn't going to go back there and I didn't want to go back to America and we managed to get into Spain. So we've been here for uh, a little over three years now and I put out probably 30 records since then. Yes. So the, yeah. is, 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 is the global, glo tiny global productions, is that your main hustle at the moment? Yeah, I do, um, I do licensing of music two and four films. So uh, like I'm working on a film right now that's it's actually a Hungarian animated film about um, American Indian um, sort of uh, birth legends, if you will. And so I'm licensing stuff like that. And that kind of pays most of the bills. And then uh, the label helps a bit. Um, and it's, it's making money now. Yes. Uh, but, it, but, you know, it, that took a few years. Um, and I've got loads of stuff coming out. You have got loads of stuff coming out. So what yeah. was your kind of, you know, the business model, you know, setting up a label isn't sort of renowned for sort of um, a steady income at the best of times. So what did you sort of have some idea of how you were going to be able to make it work and, and to both finance it and to make it sustainable? Um, well, you know, I had, I had a flat in Hungary and then I, then I, when I got money from the Hungarian film, I bought. The, I happened to be able to buy the flat next door, and we combined them. And then we got kicked out. And so um, that was sort of the peak of Hungary economically, because it's really gone downhill since then. And so we sold the place, and we had enough money to buy a house here in Valencia, where I live. And yeah, so I don't know anything on the house, and it's so super cheap to live here, really. And um, uh, I will and I do stuff so we don't really need much money to go by and then the label kind of is just paid for itself more or less um, yeah. some records lose a little money some records make a bit and um, uh, yeah so I mean actually I haven't really taken any money from from the label I've just put it back in the label which is why we've like this year well there are press problems with vinyl pressing turnaround times but this year I'll have maybe 12 or 13 albums out 
Yes. And your yeah. and the roster that you've got, obviously, because I was doing an interview with Stuart Moxon the other week, and I think this is where you sort of came on the radar. So you, you've got a particular penchant for sort of eight kind of really talented 80s singers and bands, haven't you? Have you always had a passion for this decade or is this kind of something that has developed later on? No, I, I mean, that was, you know, I, I was certainly listening to Young Marble Giants in 1980 and the gist in 1982, and I was a big fan of Stewart's and brought him over and did a couple of things with him in America. And I think he's just, you know, he's a really underrated guy in a way. I, I think putting out the Young Marble Giants album is, as his first real project, um, you know, it was a really tough thing to live up to. And it was such a unique band. And he's, he's, just, a, he's just a fantastic songwriter. And I, I think that like Stewart and, and Martin Brahma from Blue Orchids, uh, and Rob Lloyd from from the Nightingales have have always done really fantastic work, and they've never really kind of crossed over into to major success. And um, if you look back now on uh, really good writers and and performers from say 1980, there aren't many left who are still doing good stuff. And I and I would I would make the argument that. You know, a 2022 Nightingales record is probably far better than a 1982 Nightingales record. Um, they, he's, you know, Rob's got the right band and they, he just knows what he's doing. And, and most of his peers, he was on the, the White Riot tour with you know, the Clash and the Jam and the Slits and the Subway Sect. And, and, you know, most of those acts either aren't going or the major people in them uh, aren't around or just aren't doing that much and, and Rob's better than ever. And I think that's true of Stuart. And I think that's true of Martin and um, other things have kind of found their way in. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you know, but I'm doing a record with David Westlake from The Servants. Oh my God, David Westlake. Oh, I've been trying to get hold of David Westlake. Um, oh, I'll get you a hold of him because, well, actually, I think you, the reason that you haven't been get to, able to get hold of him is because he's got this new record, which I've got Right. Okay. Well, he's because I have meant I have messaged him a few times, and he's yeah. slightly. Just he's wait. I think he's. I think he. I think he's telling me about this, and I think he's waiting until the record's about out. We just got the CDs the other day, and the right. album. The album's coming out. It, it'll be out uh, like in August around then. I'll send you when we hang up. Message me your address, and I'll send you a copy. Oh, I'd uh, love to. But the, I... the record's great, and it's like Luke Haynes is on good and all and it's a bit of a concept album about um you know in typical post-punk perversity it's about uh things that he remembers uh from england that he really likes you know so it's sort of a, a, a talking about what 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 england's lost in a way you know some of the nice things that it's lost um that people don't talk about it's not it which sounds a bit you know, nationalistic maybe, but it's not at all. It's a really sentimental record. And uh, it's fantastic. Oh, well, I would imagine. Yes. No, yeah. it, well, it's interesting doing this show because I think a lot of the, what I've discovered, and I was a bit freaked out when the other day Pod, Podbean said, oh, yes, you know, congratulations, you've, you've uploaded your 700th 
interview <laughs> and I thought jeezy queasy um but the the thing what I suppose has has kind of happened is that I've discovered a lot of bands that I missed the first time because back then you couldn't just literally listen to a record at all you know and even if you went into the record shop with a little list of singles you wanted to buy they often didn't have them so yeah you know, you just kind of had to miss them. And, you know, you got the obvious ones, time, you know, eclipsed. And then, you know, you get on with the rest of the other bits and pieces in your life. And then have a bit of time to go back and listen and dis- rediscover, or not rediscover, just discover stuff that you missed the first time. And that has been a really interesting surprise. I don't know if I'm particularly, why I particularly like this decade so much, whether I would do the same in the, the, the 90s or the noughties. But there was something kind of intriguing, you know, there was... I mean, I suppose one of the bands that come to mind was Easter House from Manchester, who did one really amazing album. They did a second one, but I think the band were breaking up there. Yeah. And you think, my God, that's amazing. I, you know, I know they were in the NME, but I completely missed them. And, you know, that I could go through loads of bands that I kind of missed. So it's kind of interesting how talented they were. And also doing these interviews, how committed people were to the craft. So, you know, like there was another band who I definitely mm. didn't like, um, called um, was it Shelly Ann Orphan? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and I just wasn't going to like them, but then I did an interview with the chap, and he was just so nice. And he, but he was yeah. so committed to the craft and the music, and 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 it meant everything to him. And he's and he's managed to find an Italian label to, you know, record his next album. But he's the commitment that people had. It wasn't just like, oh, we did this for five years, we broke up. I wasn't really into music that much. It was like, no, it really did mean so much. And yeah. I still love doing it. And the guy from Stump, who I did an interview with, who's now on Dimple Disc Records again, he's like, I just love making music. But, you know, finding somewhere to put it out is really difficult. But the commitment and the, you know, people are so authentic. I suppose that's what really gets me. I think that's, 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 you know, just about everybody that I've interviewed, there's an authenticity to them and, and something really passionate. They committed themselves to making those records in the 80s and they would still like to make them and they're still, you know, in their bedroom, still twiddling around thinking, yeah. God, I could still make another album if I had the chance, you know. So it's interesting, yeah, as a decade. They're, 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 they're lifers, essentially. And, and I mean, I think that's a common... Uh, thread between most of the artists on the label is that they're just gonna, you know, Martin Brahma is just gonna do this no matter what, you know, and and he's really good at it. And because he's not trying to make a record that's gonna sell loads of copies, I mean, that's not his, you know, you know I, I'm sure he wishes that that, that happens, but he's, that's not his goal. Um, all of these artists, they, they just make really great records and, and, um, uh, it's kind of nice to be behind that. Uh, D- David Callahan, you know, from the Wolfhounds too. I've I've done a record with him. We've got a second one in the works, and um, I love it because he just sat down and he did something really different from anything he's done before. Have you heard English Primitive One? No, I haven't actually. You know about it? Yes, it came oh. out last year. It came out last year, and it's it's um, you know, it's nothing like the Wolfhounds really. It's nothing like Moonshake there's still, you know, some thread there because it's David Callahan behind it, but uh, it's this folky raga s Indian, very strange record. And it's really kind of beautiful and haunting and a little scary at times too. And it's, uh, it just came up with something really new for the third time. And uh, 
and it's it's just it's great be, to be behind those kind of things yes and i would imagine it feels like it's something that's um and also something that's kind of feels so valid but also then are you going back and doing people's kind of archives as well like with Stuart because he's early band the gist yeah yeah i've done two records of of the gist that uh, mostly of stuff that that was never released at the time uh i'm reissuing uh the blue orchids greatest hit money mountain their first album uh as a double album with album of unreleased material um and that hasn't been on vinyl for about 40 years yes does that have the flood on it the what is it called here comes the flood or the flood that's um i did that was there was um there were two singles before the album and then there was a four song ep after the album and that came out i put all that stuff out together on an album called awful with two songs that had never been released at least in those forms and so this is kind of everything else they did in the early days um except for the stuff that's on that album so it has um oh for instance um that's well, right it's, trying, it's a, trying to think of, so it uh, starts with the flood and then it's got disney boys work oh and, no you're looking at you're looking at a cd reissue where they appended the first four singles oh to it. so those were those were singles um no this has um this has uh oh I'm trying to think of like what, what a year with no head was kind of a cult thing and uh weight and sun connection and uh um low profile and bad education which aztec camera covered uh it's it's the first blue orchids album that came out on rough trade right really the only that was the only, their only album for years until they, he kind of got it back together and did more yes so do do you find that people come knocking at your door or um are you are, are you sort of going to them saying look i really like what you've been doing is there anything else you've got that you want to record? Um, well, I brought the Blue Orchids to play in, in uh, Budapest, and we talked about doing a record there. He didn't have a he didn't have a record deal, and uh, so that's how that started. And now I've just got this, this too. This is like another new one. Uh, it's not out yet. Blue Orchids album, and um, this that's the one, two, three, four. That's the fifth record, the fifth new album I've done with him. And so we're doing all that back catalog. And so that's just something we sort of mutually agreed on. Um, David Westlake approached me out of the blue uh, and sent me this, the recordings he'd done, which were so great. I mean, it was a really easy thing. Uh, David Callahan approached me out of the blue uh, with this record that he did largely during lockdown. And that was fantastic. And um, it kind of goes both ways, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So what releases have you got lined up for the rest of this year and then into 23? Uh, well, the David Westlake record, uh, new Blue Orchids album, and then the Blue Orchids Greatest Hit Money Mountain reissue. Uh, new Nightingale's record in autumn uh, that, that they actually recorded here in Spain. Um, and the second album from a Manchester band called Bingo Harry that uh, was something that Martin Brahma uh, the Blue Orchids had recorded one of their songs and it's really kind of one guy. Um, and it's it's kind of like T-Rex. It's sort of like the pre-glam part of T-Rex. You know, it's sort of getting a little bit weird, but it's still got that folky kind of thing. 
the guy behind it, Benny Jones, is just really talented. So new Bingo Harry record. Um, Gemma Rogers, who's um, a singer-songwriter from London. Um, and she is an amazing record that'll be out uh, this summer. And I'm gonna, I'm just nervous I'm going to forget something. <laughs> I've got the second second album from John Russell, who, who passed away last year. He was the the main songwriter in the very early version of the Glitter Band. Oh! And I, I did uh, his first record since first album since 1974, about two years ago. And then uh, shortly he had cancer, sadly, and he he passed away at the end of last year. But but he managed to do another record, um, which will come out later this year. Which had in, in, involvement from from Rob from the Nightingales sang songs on the first one, and John Rob from the Membranes was on it, and uh, Simon Ding Archer from the Fall recorded it, and so there's a lot of interesting people. John yes. Langford from Econs wrote a song. Yeah. So which member of the Glitter Band was that, John? John Russell. Oh, because I didn't. He, he wrote all the really early hits. He played, he played or co-wrote them anyway. He played. Uh, uh, horns and and did all the arrangements. He was kind of the musical mastermind uh, on the first album, but but stuff like Let's Get Together Again. He co-wrote Angel Face. Yes, yeah. I got you. No, because I did an interview with one of the members of the the Glitter Band, and because um, they had a kind of a compilation out on Cherry Red Records last year, yeah. and then uh, there was another member who I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. And he said, oh yeah, definitely. And then I never heard from him. I thought, I wonder if it's the same person. But I don't think it was actually. Well, who was it? Like Pete Phipps or somebody? So I think it was Pete that I've done. There's one member who still does the Glitter Band at holiday camps. Yeah, um, that's Pete. That's Pete. And I think the other one is John Springgate. I might yeah. touch with. He's kind of involved. I mean, there were a lot of fractions within that band, and people came and went. And and uh, um, you know, I think I think for like real fans, John Russell was the founder of the band. I mean, he did all the arrangements, and he ended up leaving the band because they had such a horrible record deal that he couldn't deal with it. And the rest of the band was like, ah, you know, we'll just live with it. And he was kind of, kind of a, a man of principle. Pete Phipps was actually, I think the second drummer really mm. in the band. And, um, yes. uh, you know, there've been all these splinter bands and they went on and did all sorts of things, but, and in America, they meant nothing. They never had even a hint <laughs> of a hint there. Um, I know. I think the glam bands generally did, you know, and even T, you know, Mark Boland didn't really do much either. Did he? Mark, Mark Boland had, you know, T-Rex had one big hit and, uh, the suite had a couple. Uh, they were about as close as anything came, uh, except Bowie, who didn't really have. Bowie really only had one hit until, well, I mean, one proper chart hit until uh, until Let's Dance, which was Fame, and I'm sure that the John Lennon connection on that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, you'd hear Bowie, and it was sort of a cult thing, and he sold records, but he really didn't make the charts at all until I was out of high school. No, absolutely no. He was. It was kind of strange how he um, managed to navigate. Yes, the glam, the glam world. I think Sweet is still going. I think they do kind of play various strange little places, hotels. You yeah. know, like Pete Noon from yeah. that band. I think he still yeah. plays a few little kind of dives here and there. So um, yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing. I think a lot of people get residencies, like Terry Reed, who was that sixties, seventies singer songwriter who 
Ledger League was going to be in Led Zeppelin, but turned it down. So um, I think he used to play every night or every Wednesday night at a bar in LA somewhere. So, yes, I often wonder, though, when the Glitter Band were bringing out this kind of compilation on Cherry Red, just how many copies people would actually buy? Because you think, should I do the Glitter Band or the best of Gary Glitter? Well, it's interesting because the, the John Russell album I put out sold fairly well but it was a very different crowd than what I normally sell to. A much older crowd, it has to be said, um, because they were. it's the only time I got letters from people asking me if I would explain how they could order it over the internet, which doesn't really happen with anything else. But um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, there there are people that are, that was their music and they, they're Darhide, Darhide, no, sorry, diehard glitter fans and, and they love all that kind of stuff and they argue about it online. It's a, but it's a very peculiar little world, you know? Yes. But yeah. um, yes, well, I grew up with the wonderful world of Gary and I wanted to be in his gang. So there you go. It was, it's a, it was a great, great sound. And um, Adam Ant sort of did well with some of the work. So with, with your, you know, because obviously this is a lot of admin you do. When, when bands are also touring, do you sort of have connections with that, that side as well, like the Nightingales or Martin Branagh? No, they kind of book their own shows and do that. I mean, I'm I'm going over uh, tomorrow because the Nightingales are touring, so I'll, I'll see them in a couple of cities and and travel with them, and then I'll I've got a bunch of business to do in London. And they're playing there on Tuesday. Yes, the garage. And so um, I do that, but they either booking themselves or they have booking agents. Uh, Fliss, the drummer from the Nightingales, who's a total force of nature, she she's tended to book the Nightingales shows. Um, they got a promoter to do most of this tour, uh, and I don't think it's gone as well as when Fliss did it. She's just way more on the ball. But, um, but they're playing bigger places since the film came out. And uh, yeah, they're just, you know, they're a fantastic live band, so. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, and she's a taxidermist, so um, she obviously... Yeah. It's obviously a multi-skilled person, <laughs> which was yeah. fantastic for the for the um, thing. So, so is it the case that with, with the label that it's quite you know like sustainable in the sense of you you sort of know how much you can input and sort of invest and how much you need to get out and how many sales you do, so that the thing can keep rolling quite comfortably without any kind of major disaster awaiting around the corner. Yeah, I mean, especially at this point, I think that's that's pretty much where we are. Um, it's it's most everything's kind of breaking even, which is fine. I mean, you, you know, occasionally something will kind of lose enough money that it's like, oh, well, that lost a bit of money. But some things are doing really well, and um, now I'm not having to put more money into it. And uh, then having the back catalog helps because you still sell, you know, bits of things you put out a few years back that you know, are already paid for or written off or whatever. And um, we're kind of expanding into America now. And uh, so, you know, yeah, we've licensed a few things to Japan. Yes, uh, I would imagine, I don't know what happened to Vinyl Japan, but that was one of those labels that did sort of great things with sort of lots of quirky bands on mostly Sarah Records, actually. But um, I think they've, they've been and gone, haven't they? Well, the, I think the owner of the company, the, who they had a British kind of outpost for a while, and uh, but the guy who owns it uh, in in Japan, I, I don't think he's been well. To what I've heard, 
and so they've slowed down. There's a shop there and stuff, but uh, um, uh, I licensed the Gist record and this record that's through Maxim David Louis Philippe to a really great Japanese label. I've done a really good job with it. Um, and uh, Hayabusa Landings, they're called. Yes. So a few of those. You know, we get weird letters. I got a letter today from a guy in Greece who's like, can I buy five copies of everything that you've put out for my shop? Which, you know, that ends up being a lot. Blimey. That is, yeah. in, that is impressive one, actually. So what does it mean when you say you'd license it to America? Do you then have to get a label in America to... Well, I know actually I'm not licensing stuff to America. We're kind of starting an American branch. So they'll just do what we're doing here in America. So there'll be promotion within America and the priorities will be a little bit different because some things are going to do uh I mean the blue orchids for instance probably do a little better in America than they do in the UK um there was a time when loads of American bands were covering their songs that I mean or or bands working out of America uh Fish and Roses which is uh, a guy who's now in $75 bill and Slovenly who are on SST and uh, the Dust Devils who are on Matador all covered songs from The Greatest Hit. And they, they have a sort of a bigger cult there than in uh, than in Britain, where I think that Martin Brahma was always sort of under the cloud of having been in the fall. But that's, yes. changed, that's changing a lot now. I think it is, because um, he's, he's kind of, the, the last album sounded amazing, actually. And I, yeah. I agree about the Nightingales. I think, I think their newer material sounds much better. The same with the Membranes, actually. I always thought the production on their early albums, which I know people like, just always sounded really muffled, whereas actually their latter work sounded much better, actually. So that's... I think, you know, it's crazy because, because uh, uh, I was talking to one of the members of the, of the Membranes not long ago, and they do... They record those albums super quickly. I mean, and they do sound really great. Um, uh, I think that they just go in and they're so prepared when they go into the studio, they just knock them out. And then they do a bunch of, I mean, you know, some of the recent albums have had, you know, choirs and, you know, other things that they add on later. I, I yes. Uh, but they're very, they're very pro. They know what they're doing. The same with the Nightingales. They, they recorded their last album here. And they just, it was a, that was a tough record for them because they hadn't been able to get together so much because of COVID. And Andy, the bass player, lives in, is German and he lives in Germany. And so, but they pulled that record together in like six days and it sounds great. And they, they really took chances and did different things and were open to new ideas. It's the first time they recorded outside of Germany for um, probably five albums or so. Are you finding after the last two years that people are absolutely desperate to, uh, you know, after sort of realising, to quote Joni Mitchell, you don't know what you've got until it's gone, and thinking, oh my God, we better get going actually. Do you, have you found suddenly a bit of a spike in people both wanting to record and also tour as well? I know touring is not your thing, but just I just wondered if there's suddenly people being a bit more desperate to get out there and do it after realising things weren't I think, a lot, I think a lot of bands fell apart. I suspect uh, because of COVID and they were just so geared towards playing live and in kind of recording in a live sort of way. And that was tough to sustain, but um, I know it was really frustrating for a lot of bands and I know they're, they're, everyone's pretty happy to get out on the road, but the problem is in Britain, um, a lot of the crowds are staying away because they're still a little bit nervous about COVID. And uh, the one thing that everyone's talking about just every label I've spoken to is that nobody's much buying tickets in advance. They'll, they'll walk up the, the, the date of the show 
and by. And uh, the Nightingales last, the previous tour to this one, uh, sold out in advance. And this one didn't seem to be going really well, but then they're getting these huge walk-ups. So I think people are just, I think fans are very hesitant to, to, um, to kind of plan on going to a show because of, you know, they've been new quarantines and nobody really knows, but I think people just really wanted to get back to normal. Yes. I think I, I, I mean, it's kind of been strange the last couple of two months because for two years, I didn't know anybody who had COVID or had even had it, but then suddenly, you know, just everyone I'm meeting is going, Oh, I've been tested for COVID or, you know, suddenly there was that kind of new, new conversation has come along, you know, it's like, Oh, I haven't seen you for ages. It's Oh no, I had COVID, you know? So it's like, Oh, okay. You know, now it's a bit boring that people have got, you know, had it because. (laughs) Well, it's not as, it's not as rough as it was in the beginning, I guess. So, um, you know, I hope it continues that way, but here we had mask restrictions until, uh, until Tuesday, I think. Till, well, no, it would have been last. Yeah, until this Tuesday, you had to wear a mask when you were out in public still. So that just ended two days ago. Right. It was over two years. I still get, I still go out. And I mean, now I go out and I've got a mask on and it takes me a while to realize I don't actually have to wear it. Yes, um, I know. But, you know. It's a long time. It really it changed isn't. people's mentalities. And with, and just kind of lastly, or vaguely, um, did you you know, being sort of running the label, I mean, have you sort of come across lots of other people like, I don't know, from different sort of indie labels that you've sort of compared notes with, you know, people like Alan McGee and uh, such like like that? Because we, you know, because Alan did creation records massive in the, you know, did amazing stuff in the 80s, massive in the 90s, sort of a bit tricky. Now he's got, you know, the label again, got new bands, got a roster, you know, he's, he's, he's rocking. I just wondered, you know, when you meet people like that, if you compare notes. I, I, I've never met Alan, but um, certainly like these guys that run Dimple Discs. You yes. know that label? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. That's a great label. And um, we've just sort of corresponded about this and that. And um, because of uh, the Nightingales and, and also uh, another band that I helped them, them find, uh I, I do talk to fire records a lot i've done a few i put together the nightingales reissues for them and and do other things and so uh yeah i'll go to the fire offices when i'm in london and and uh i learn a few things and um yeah there's a bit of that you know i mean whenever you encounter somebody those those guys that run occultation if you know that label no uh they put out um they put out Factory Star, which was Martin's Martin Brahma's band before he restarted the, the Blue Orchids, and they did. Um, they've done a bunch of cool things, um, but uh, yeah, I'm friends with them on Facebook, and you know, every now and then, you know, you exchange a word. Um, it's the sort of thing that'd be fun to do more often, but I think usually everyone's so busy, it's really hard time to to make those conversations. Yes. You know? I would imagine. And has vinyl records, has that sort of been a bit of a deal breaker or game changer for you, sort of being able to sort of release records now in, on vinyl? Um, I've been really lucky in that, that what I was told at the end of last year was that the vinyl turnaround times would be, you know, eight months, nine months, ten months, and they've been closer to three or four. Um, and I, that's not everyone's situation so i don't you know i don't want to jinx it or anything it might just be good luck um but uh vinyl is outselling for me anyway uh 
vinyls outselling CDs two or three to one. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful for it, actually. I mean, yes. it's, it's nice. Uh, CDs are sort of becoming problematic. I mean, the label's grown enough that, like, when I put out a record, it's selling a lot more than if I'd put something out five years ago. Um, but that growth is entirely in LPs uh, on vinyl. CDs sell about the same as they did five years ago, which I take to mean that CD sales are probably really going down. It's just that's countered by the growth of the label. So yeah. it just seems like it's static to me, but uh, proportionally I'm selling fewer CDs, way more vinyl and way more uh, digital downloads. I'm on Bandcamp. On Bandcamp, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. God, it's, yeah. an exci- it's an exciting adventure, though, isn't it? I mean, it's great that, um, you know, there's so many kind of new releases. I'm so excited about David Westgate, I have to say. Oh, well, yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's, and I, I kind of I sent all these things off at the same time because I didn't know when any of them would come back, and then they've all come back really quickly, and now I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? Um, the Blue Orchids have, have, are already about to record another album, and this this new one's not. Martin's become, since Marquis Smith passed away, Martin Brahma's become incredibly prolific. I mean, he's 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 done. I think Martin's recorded and released more songs that he wrote in the past five years than in the past thirty five years before that. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a strange thing, and. Um, and it really, but it really helps if you're a band. It's the same with the Nightingales. I, I think that because they were always on a different label, um, I mean, I work really hard for them, I, but, but, you know, some of it's just that they're a great band. But I think that when they were on a different label with every single release, every time they put out a new record, the label's sort of reinventing the wheel of what you need to do to make a Nightingales record uh, be successful. And now that we're going on another album and Rob's got this, secret project I'm not allowed to discuss outside the Nightingales, then it just, it's a lot easier every time, you know, who's going to support it and you reach the people and it's consistent and the distribution is the same and stores get to know you. Um, I've been talking to a lot of shops in, in Britain lately and it's kind of nice when uh, you tell them who you are and they know the label. Yes, so that, absolutely. No, I, well, I spoke to, you know, I think Kev Hopper, I think that's mm-hmm. his name who was in Stump and he's on Dimple Disc. And he said, it is really, you know, you kind of want the la- a label in some form so you don't have to think about that. You know, you can say, can I just think about the music and Absolutely. just concentrate on that? And then someone's going to support it and deal with that side of it. But I don't think, you know, you can't, your brain can't quite do all of that, you know, and um, I think it would be- Running important. a label is, is like, it's a lot of logic and planning and, you know, just, uh, doing things in a rote kind of mechanical way to a large extent. And then there's, you know, there's a bit of an art to it, you know, getting records to turn out the way you want them to, or, you know, what is best for the band and, you know, figuring things out. But um, I think Brian O'Neill, and I I don't want to get this wrong, but I think Brian O'Neill and Damien O'Neill from the Undertones are partners in Dibble Discs. And despite their name, I don't think they're even related, but, um, but it's mostly Brian that I've, I've spoken to and he's just a really good guy and he's worked for other labels and he seems to get it. And I think that for Cahal Coughlin from Micro Disney and uh, Fatima Mansions, who's also on Dimple Discs and, and people like Kev Hopper and, and they've, they've got a couple of new artists, you know, it's, re- it's gotta be really great for those artists because the label does a really good job uh, getting the word out there 
and they're very professional about it. So most artists are artists. I mean, they, they, they live in their own artsy world in their head. And um, it's not always the most compatible thing with putting out, putting out records. Um, and so it's nice if you can kind of form that partnership. Yes. Well, I was just thinking, I, 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 was, I'm, I'm, I was just saying that I was going to hopefully get an interview with a guy who was in the Violent Flames, who's, who's got a release coming out on Dimple Disc soon. So God knows what his name is, but he was very arty. I have to say he's the most arty person I've ever spoke to in my life. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. In, and, and, <laughs> you know, and there are, there are artists out there in the world of music who are, really deliberate in what they do and they've got a plan and it's you know they've sort of looked at all the marketing and they've figured out their approach for mass appeal but that's a you know and i don't mean to dismiss those things but that's a that's a commercial product from its inception whereas i i don't think if you're rob lloyd or or martin brahma or you know dave callahan or any of them you wake up and just think i don't know this this i taylor made this song to sell a million copies they're just that's they're just too unique. Yes, uh, I know. Well, I, I once heard, of, I think it was Coldplay, who was like, they've got their plan of how to conquer America and, you know, we'll yeah. do it this side and then we'll do this. And then, you know, they were very methodical and, and successful doing it. But, you know, I couldn't imagine a lot of British indie bands being able to be that quite together. Just well, and they wanted the, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I would imagine they just, they wanted to be hugely successful and, you know that was their plan. Whereas, I, I don't, I don't think that most of the bands that I'm dealing with just think in those terms. Particularly, if you're somebody who's been doing this for several decades, and it's just it just becomes a part of who you are. This is your art. You know, you're gonna, you know, I mean, it's a horrible sort of comparison to say old old ladies sit and knit shawls, and other people just write and record their their weird records and and hope that they can do it in a sustainable way or even make a bit of money. You know, yes. It's, it's, it's well, nice I think, to see a band like the Nightingales actually, you know, get some cash. Well, it was just brilliant that Stuart Lee and Fire Records put together that film because it obviously sparked an interest. And I did notice that the, the, there was the 80s suddenly became quite interested in sort of revisiting some of those because there was the, the kind of the wedding present. George yeah. Best album, there was a film, wasn't there? And then the go-betweens had a film, the chills had a film, Dolly Mixers, I think, had a film, L seven. And then it was funny because because I think it was also during the last year or two, there's been a lot of just looking, because there's been lots of kind of photographic books have come out of um bands from the eighties. There was one that guy did from the Boston scene, there was a Texan scene. Yeah. And yeah. good old Kevin Cummins bringing out his book on Joy Division and then various other sort of you know, compilations from that, you know, those box of negatives they had, probably not under their bed, but you get the gist and thinking, well, yeah. no one's interested. And then someone say, my God, they are amazing. Everyone's going to want to look at those bands from 1982 to 85, you know, in the box. Well, people, people don't, I mean, generally people don't think of the time that they're living in as, as archival, but you know, it's going to be in decades and, and some people are astute enough to record and, photograph and in other ways document what's going on at a particular time and then that becomes really fascinating later the the thing with the nightingales film it was a miracle really is that uh Stuart lee who's who's from around birmingham was was a nightingales fan and and michael cumming uh the director of the film uh happened to be a fan as well and at some point they just got to talking about projects and i don't i don't know if they were thinking of working together and just trying to come up with something but the Nightingale 
else came up is the one thing that they had in common that they thought was worthy of a of a film and it's very unusual for a for a band like the Nightingales or, or a fellow like Robert Lloyd to have a film because he never had any, I mean, there were flirtations with avenues of success when he was on Virgin Records and, you know, he was putting out Fuzzbox Records uh, and things like this. But uh, generally he's just very doggedly done what he's done for, for four decades. And when we were sitting around talking with Stuart uh, about the film, Robert was just sort of like, yeah, you know, okay. So then what's going to happen after everyone decides they saw the film and that we're just a bunch of idiots and you know, they move away. And I don't think anybody really anticipated that that was a, a very touching film. And I think it's, it's one of the very rare rock films in that it actually was viewed far more by people that had never heard of the band than by the fans. And the response was really crazy after it was first aired on Sky TV uh, about 14 months ago, we were just flooded with orders and people asking these crazy questions. And, and it was really just a beautiful thing. Um, and it's, and it's done a lot for the band now, you know, yes. different kinds of press. Well, yeah. I think it's been, yes, absolutely. I think, yeah. And um, hopefully that will, that will keep them going, but also, you know, there's a lot of other people, other bands and artists that people I think will suddenly appreciate and hopefully when they're still alive rather than when they're passed away so there you go yeah half, half man half biscuit hopefully being one of those ones that people reappraise and think yes they're worthy of much more sort of um, accolade really you know well that's there's such a cult band and that cult is so devo devoted and and uh yeah i think that that's just one of those things that's bound to happen i hope so but the, the other thing too is that people don't realize and i remember this um you know when i when I came to be the age when I could get into shows and stuff, I was really disappointed that most of the bands I followed, which were disproportionately British, um, just couldn't really last more than a couple of records at that point. There was the, the time when uh, you know, Rough Traders putting out Raincoats records and Essential Logic records and Pop Group records and this sorts of things. And then that was, I mean, I, I saw that as, a, as really real stuff. It was very committed. Uh, and I think those people really were and still are, but it fell out of fashion maybe. And that's when you saw things like the Smiths happen and um, you know, the American bands that Rough Trade signed and, and, and putting more money into things like Scritti Politi or Aztec Camera that were a you know, different sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't as political. It was a little more straight ahead maybe. I'm not saying it was better or, or worse or anything like that, but... Um, it was really disappointing that those things didn't last. And what's really interesting now <clears throat> is that if you look at, if you look at 1982, to me, that was a, a big change of a, a year for music, but 40 years on any of those scenes, whether it's the, the bands that were on C86 or the rough trade bands or the original punk bands or the, you know, two-tone ska bands, they've all now, um, some of them have just disappeared and some of them have managed to last and, it's rarely at all the ones that you thought would be around decades later. That's the, that's the, the really lovely thing about it. Yes. Is, uh, you know. But it's quite, I, I suppose what's also been quite interesting is that there's been, there's like Cherry Red Records, there's also Cloudbury Records in New York, and then there's Fire Station in Germany, as well as now a little indie label in Preston called Optic Nerve Records. And they've been sort of, 
kind of finding these kind of bands who only put out some singles, a few flexi discs, possibly an EP, broke up and they've come, they've kind of archived their material and put out a greatest hits with a quite a nice booklet. I don't yeah. know if you've come across Optic Nerve Records, but it's sure, like, yeah, they're fantastic. It's and, a great and it's a real labor of love. And I just think, oh, thank God for that, because it was going to completely get lost if it hadn't sort of someone had come along and said no those few singles here and this flexi disc here we'll 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 tidy it up a bit and we'll put it out and it's like oh fantastic this is this is all good stuff so um yeah that's that's the that's the upside of it the downside of it is that i've had many conversations with artists who who would say oh you know i recorded these you know two albums worth of demos and i was sleeping in my car and i didn't have space so i just put them in the bin you know, and there's a lot of stuff that did get lost that that uh, will never be tracked down. It just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so, so labels like Optic Nerve really do a public service, and that you know, uh, you can get stuff that you never heard of before that that turns out to be fantastic. And of course, people are always reevaluating the past, and a lot of things that everybody thought were great in in any year, pick a year, 1982, turn out to not sound that great today. But other things that didn't sort of makes sense then really makes sense now and and that's the that's sort of the beautiful thing about about popular music is it's always being reassessed and reevaluated and and it comes and goes in fashion in certain ways but uh yes I'm, I'm, I'm of the age now where there's, there's things where i bought the original record and then 15 years later i bought the deluxe edition original record and now i'm buying the three cd expand you know triple expanded version you know i've <laughs> You've just seen those things come and go and come again in a bigger way. And it's that's the beautiful thing about music. Yes. Well, it will be even more exciting when I hopefully get an interview with David. David. I will make sure it happens. It will ha it will happen. It will happen. And and and, and um I'll send you the I'll send you the stuff. Just yes. Just, uh, I, just as soon as, as as soon as we hang up, just just message just send me a, a messenger thing with your address and tell me what you don't have. Or tell me what you have, because that's easier. Yeah, no, that would be okay. fine. But um, it was it was four years ago. Tell him I've been waiting four years for this. Actually, I've just seen. Well, I think that you know he. I think he's been working on this record for a long time. He's he's a professor. He's an academic, and you know that's his real gig. And he's uh, he's a happily married guy, and he's got a life and this sort of stuff. But he's one of these people that he came up with this brilliant concept for a record, um, and uh, I don't know how long it took to record it. I think Luke Haynes did a lot of the, the recording uh, at his house and then they had a you know guy engineering it and stuff who did a quite job. It's a lovely sounding record. And it's, it's very similar to the, Dave, the David Callahan thing too. The, the records are nothing alike, but uh, they're both such really beautiful personal works and they're, they just have such lovely moments and, and you know, real emotion and there's funny parts and there's really in, kind of intensely emotional parts and uh, uh, it's uh, the amazing thing for me as an American, I always saw the C86 thing is like, well, that's when the punk rock ethos kind of made it to the suburbs and the, the countryside, you know, I mean, you had these bands really popping out of nowhere. Yes. Whereas in, in punk, it was still London and Leeds and, you know, the bigger cities. And, uh, and what's now you're, you're seeing some of the, some of the artists that were, because there was a lot of, I think C86 stuff that was quite fey and, simplistic and doesn't hold up particularly well but like every musical generation it produced some real geniuses and it in and what how whatever 36 years on it's becoming obvious who they are 
yes and, and what they've done and it's 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 lovely to see that happen and uh, yeah. i'm really proud to have the the two davids on the label because they're just doing really great stuff i know this is great yeah. oh yeah just last question if you could have sort of whispered something in your 16 year old ear you know when you were starting out or 18 i mean is there any kind of word of you know a few kind of bullet points of wisdom that you've knowledge that you picked up over the decades that you thought yes that would be really handy you know something you might sort of still think yes just keep doing that because that's good or think of doing that or don't do that i just wondered I, I i wish i'd saved a lot more memorabilia and also i had this habit of thinking i've heard this record a thousand times i have it perfectly in my head i'm going to sell it so i can buy another new record you know and i've i've sold some real regrettable uh, regrettably sold, I should say, some some records I wish I'd held on to, and uh, it's it's kind of hard to know that. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know. That would that would be it. It's just kind of your past is going to be important to you in the future, regardless of what you think. So if there's anything that you think you might have some nostalgia for, don't let it go. Yes, I think every, most people say, God, I wish I'd taken a camera and taken more pictures and kept hold of more flyers and posters because not yeah. for eBay, but just for your own, you know, memories. And, um, and actually most of those things like flyers actually look like works of art now as well. So um, that's quite interesting. Well, I mean, you know, the original punk and post-punk era into C86, I mean, particularly I think when you get to C86, because there were certainly punk bands that looked to sign to major labels and probably without without the proper role models thought that they might turn into a rolling stones or small faces or something like that but by the time you get to c86 i mean there there's the odd primal scream or something or the smiths but if you look at the original c86 cassette i get the impression that at least three quarters of those artists were just like we're doing what we're doing if it never goes anywhere we're fine with that which which makes for interesting music because it's it in generally no way contrived. Yes. Um, and so, uh, and the interesting thing about it is is that the those people that did that with no regard for uh, for the their future prosperity in music, uh, many of them did make music that that has lasting cultural value and potentially even monetary value, and and that's a lovely thing. But. Um, so many bands. I remember working in record record shops in the early '80s, and you'd see these bands come out signed to major labels. That you know they had the image and they had the sound and they had the producer, and it was never going to last. It was just so paper thin. Mm. And you can well, buy. I think, I think in the UK, the one the other thing that um, happened in that early '80s period, and it slightly built up, was that there was a sort of sense of desperation, and for being you know, when you're young, it just all seems like untouchable and and there wasn't a huge amount of career progression and you know going to university was quite you know you had to sort of get a levels so a lot of people were unemployed at that time and so there was the unemployment yeah. system there was job seekers alliance and enterprise alliance schemes and and there was that feeling not in a punk way like no future but more of a just resign to there is nothing for us but we could we can we can get the dull money we can sort of get our housing benefits 
paid, our council tax paid, and we can, you know, form a band and sort of, you know, do this for a bit and just see what happens. But there's no, there's no day job, there's no side hustle because there, right. there's no distractions apart from sort of probably drinking, smoking, playing some music, and then, you know, having like, like I mentioned, there were the gatekeepers that give it gave people a kind of a chance to get played on the John Peel show, which I think was huge, and then yeah. like venue, all these little venues around the country as well and again you know having the chance of playing so there was this kind of almost wow that's incredible you know we're doing something that I'd have never dreamt about but there was no still no idea that oh yes if I do this this and we can become massive superstars and earn lots of money because that was never going to happen but there was a sense of you know I, I suppose a creativity that went on during that period especially with things like the job seekers allowance or enterprise loan scheme where they give you you know if you if you could show that you had a thousand pound in your bank account which is a bit odd because <laughs> yeah. you, you know you they they would give you the doll for a year but you would be a self-employed whatever an artist yeah a writer anything flower ranger it didn't matter and and it gave people that oh great i don't even have to sign on every two weeks i can just do this for a year and that will be that will be what we're doing so a lot of bands from the 80s british scene were were, you know that was their career path really and then it's like my god john peel's given us a session now we've got you know a tour of four dates and now you know so I think it did help, you know, it did give people that sense of, okay, we better put something else out now, you know, so that was quite... Definitely, and I mean, and people, you know, the fans remember that stuff so fondly. The C86 fans in particular are just really, you know, fervently, you know, enthusiastic about that stuff, which I think is brilliant because, you know, I, I don't think most of it was designed to last. You know, I think... The Clash went in and recorded London Calling, I think, thinking, oh, you know, this will be a, a touchstone for rock and roll in the future. But I don't think that, you know, I'm trying to think of a, the, the archetypal band. And I Bog Shed. To... Bog Shed didn't think they were going <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I, mean, at least I kind of hope they didn't think that. No, I mean, yeah, like Bog Shed, that's a, that's a perfect example. Um, or, 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 or some of the, some of the bands on Sarah records, let's say, which, you know, I came out of the C86 thing in my mind, yes. you know, they, they made these, uh, occasionally really interesting and really beautiful and nice records, but it did, then didn't seem career aspirational in any way, but here we are decades later and people love them and collect them and talk about them and write about them and, Yes, I know there was Michael White did a book, didn't he? And there was even a film. But yeah, because Cherry Red yeah. Records has done a C86 triple CD box set with 66 right. tracks. And then they've gone from each year up to, I think, 91 now. I wish they would go back to the early 80s, actually, because that would... that would. I think they sort of, I mean, because there are those, they've done those themed ones where it's like the Sheffield one and there's a Manchester Liverpool. box set. And then they've they've done, they've started this, they had a seven, 1977 box set, which of course, you know, punk, and then they had 78, and you can kind of hear post-punk happening, and I think there's 79 now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's probably that'll bring it up to 85, I guess, and I don't know. Yeah, so. well, I think, I expect they're kind of happily surprised how many people are interested with it, so. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, nothing. the other thing, too, is it's, it's interesting, because, uh, you know, I'm friends with John Langford from the Mekons, and uh, when I was living in Budapest, uh, he, he 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 rang me. He said, "You know, my my son's twenty one, and he's coming over, uh, traveling around Europe. And you know, could, could he crash at your place?" And Gabby and I said, "Sure." So he stayed with us for a week. And the interesting thing was, he wasn't 
he described himself as not really a music person. Um, he's kind of an artsy kid. He's really intelligent. Uh, but the, what was really lovely talking to him, because I don't talk to a lot of 21-year-olds, but he knew about some weird thing from the 50s and some 60s band and some you know, early hip-hop thing. But his, his, his knowledge of music, to me, seemed completely random. When I was that age, I would have killed to have the access to information to let me have that sort of knowledge. And of course now, you know, you can go on Spotify or whatever and dig up anything from any era and kids don't have these externally enforced boundaries that, that like I had, you know, when I, was, when I was getting into punk and stuff and I would hear about the Velvet Underground, in America at that time, there was no Velvet Underground album in print. And, you know, in Chicago, probably nobody bought it anyway, but you couldn't find those records. They were just impossible to hear. I, it was years before, you know, I stumbled across them. And of course, now I can mention some really obscure C86 band or some Louisiana Cajun guy from the late 50s or, you know, what, anything from any era. And you can track it down really quickly. And what I found is that younger people just don't think genera generationally about music. I mean, they're happy to listen to some post-punk thing from 1979. They're happy to listen to Phil Spector. They're happy to listen to something that's tomorrow. And it's made for a nicer world in a lot of ways. We're really spoiled for, for choice. Mm. Yes. Well, I suppose I used to wonder how younger people would get on who were born, you know, quite recently. Because when, when we were younger, you only had to go back to sort of, say, 63, and then you got the history of music, popular music. Right. And you thought, okay, I feel up to date now. I can, you know, and then fill in some more gaps, get a bit yeah. more. And, um, you know, you go through the obvious ones, but you, you didn't have to go back far. But then you think, God, oh, what would you do now? You, would you even bother with it? It's decade? interesting because, I, I mean, uh, I've got this Gemma Rogers record coming out and it's really great. And it's sort of a poppy thing, but she has a really interesting lyrical stance. And when I was talking to her, um, when I first met her in London, actually, um, we were t we were just talking about things, and I, I said, you know, I can kind of hear the spirit of like Kleenex or the raincoat, something in it. I mean, there's this very sort of female perspective, and she's singing songs that presumably come out of her own life, and so on and so forth. And she has a really interesting musical way of expressing them. That's conventional enough to be really accessible, but it's strange enough to be really alluring for that reason. And she just knew nothing about any of these bands. And I just thought that was great, you know, because <laughs> yes. uh, the, the, I mean, you know, and then she, she checked them out and, and, and I think immediately understood the kinship between them and what she was doing, although neither related to the other directly. And that's really lovely too. I, I think that, uh, um, yeah, it's really beautiful what's happened to music in that way. Yeah. I remember seeing things in America like the the 20th anniversary of rock and roll special on American Bandstand. You know, there's which sounds really funny now, 20 years, you know, it's like 20 years ago to me today sounds like yesterday, but when I was watching this in 1976 as an 11-year-old and they were talking about you know, Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry or something, I just thought, "Oh man, that's like, you know, so ancient, you know." Yes, absolutely. And, and now that's yeah, it's like you know, sixty-five years old, and and uh, and so it's it's just it's become so vast that it's become very open. Yes. And I love that about it. Everything always gets reissued, and 
you can find anything on YouTube that you want just about and and you're not limited to what the new thing is now. This is, well, 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 it's interesting you mentioned about, you know, finding new music because my brother in the 70s probably had one of those kind of essential rock, you know, books, yeah. you know, essential albums. And I remember sort of reading it and then having to try and track down those records. They would always be things like Marvin Gaye, you know, Van Morrison, Joni Mitchell, The Velvet <coughs> Underground, yeah. you know, and you'd read it and you think, well, I don't know, I'll just go and try and find it. And I remember buying some of them for three ninety nine, and and being really surprised, thinking, God, Marvin Gaye, that's a bit of a strange one. I didn't expect it to sound like that. And Velvet Goldmine Underground was like, starts with Sunday morning, and it's like, God, that's a bit strange. And then it's, oh, that's a bit different, you know. And, yeah. you know, some albums yeah. took ages, like Joni Mitchell, you know, Hissing of Summer Lawns. No, Caught and Spark and Blue, I initially yeah. wasn't sure. And then I loved Moondance, but I didn't really like Astral Weeks, you know. And then, you, right. yeah. you know, and it's like, but that was those books that, you know, you had to try and track these records down, but you didn't have a chance to listen to them beforehand. And, um, yeah, it was a different, you know, it would take ages yeah, I remember driving around America with Stuart Moxon, actually, and he had a cassette of Astral Weeks. And I just knew Van Morrison's, you know, three or four American hits. And he, every day, at least once, we listened to Astral Weeks from start to finish. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just the most tedious crap ever, you know? <laughs> and then there was some song from it that just stuck in my head from that. And years later, I just like, you know, I don't know why well, that song's still in my head. And I bought the album. And of course now it's just so perfect and beautiful. And I can't, what was I thinking back then? You know, because I'm not wrong that often, I don't think. No. But I was really wrong about that. Yeah, some records just hit you. Joni Mitchell for me too. Uh, you know, that was just, uh, you know, it's kind of samey sounding. And then mm. it gets in your head in a way. And other stuff is really immediate. Well, it's funny, but the two albums I've never really been able to, to master is Pet Sounds and The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. You know, um, is it? I can't. Yeah, Pet Sounds. I, I, I mean, that to me is. I could listen to that all day long. But yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a very American record in a way. Um, whereas the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, I have it. Um, I don't really play it often. I mean, I remember playing it, thinking this is all right, but it just didn't quite. It doesn't register with me the way that I would expect it would based on its reputation. Yes, I know. I wanted to like it. I think that's the thing. I want to like it. I did a yeah. nice interview with Rose from the band and she was just fantastic and um, yeah, made it all better. She's got a good book out, so there you go. Yeah. Gotta be done. Anyway, look, John, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. So look, if you want, I can always um, give you the link and then you can always put it on your social media platform. Yeah, I'd be happy to, sure. That would be fantastic. And uh, wow, so many stories. But yes, so Dave Westlake, we are so excited. Um, that will change my life. I wonder what he's going to be like. Is he scary? What do you mean, is he scary? No, he's lovely. He's a really sweet guy. He's, well, I mean, I, it's weird because he, I think that the servants were the most uh, kind of veiled band of the C86 thing in a way because it was really hard to figure out what they were all about. And and then he had this, if you read his sort of history of his discography, he's always putting out these records like years after they were recorded. And, you know, it's just, it's a very wonky discography. And I was, I was, I mean, when I got this message from him saying, oh, I've done this record and I saw that you did this and that. And, uh, and he sent it to me and I put it on and immediately, like the first song is so great, you know, and, and uh, um, 
I was really just blown away because it's it's very rare to get stuff out of the blue that's good. Yes. You get a lot of really bad stuff. And then, and it was the same with Dave Callahan. He sent me this record and that I you know I kind of like the Wolfhounds and I really did like like Moonshake. Um and I hadn't heard much of what he'd done in between and then I put this record on and really like in 10 seconds I was like oh this is great. And it really is great. It's very yeah. different though. I'd be, I'd be, I'll, I mean, I'll make sure you get it and I'd be really curious what you think about it. You've got to let me know because I think it's a, a fantastic record. And a lot of people who've heard it so far um, have said like, I can't really deal with it. And then a week later, they're like, oh my God, it's like kind of an Astro Weeks thing condensed into a week. Oh, like, wow. oh my God, I can't believe how great it is. It's like, yeah, it just kind of gets its claws in you and good record. Fantastic. And the new one's even better. The, he's got a second one. It's, it's really... Brilliant. Kind of mostly from the same sessions, yeah. It's good stuff. This is good. This is good. Yeah. Anyway, look, John, I'll let you go because it's I don't know. Is it um an hour bit Yeah, yeah. Difference. It's all right. I don't know. I'm up late all the time anyway. That's good. <laughs> but um it's good to talk to me. Send me your address, send me what stuff of mine you have, and I'll make sure you get I'll bring it over actually uh tomorrow and um oh yeah put it in the <laughs> post from the UK. Okay, that's great. Well look, thanks a lot. I'll drop you my address. Oh, in vinyl or C D. CD would be great. Okay. 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 All right. That's so cheap. Anyway, look, thanks a lot. Take care. Take Cheers. care. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with John Henderson from Tiny Global Productions. We're very excited about the new release of David Westgate, My Beautiful England, which is coming out very soon. But um, if you want to contact me for some random but nice reason, you can. Um, just find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, luckily, all these have been archived. Indeed, they have. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show, and you will strike gold. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>